come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. to episode number 59 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode is going to be my winter, Christmas, end of year number eight episode that will feature the 2020 release is going to be anything for Jackson. And then for the wintry one, I decided to watch devil's pass or it also goes by the alternate title of the debt love pass incident and then also on this episode i have many reviews of the brides of dracula which is from 1960 to keep up with the journey through the odds i also have been re-watching as well as watching some other 2020 releases so i have a rewatch of the platform open 24 hours is a new film i've watched and then i have rewatches of vivarium and color out of space that will all be featured on this episode as well I know I actually have quite a few movies on here, so I'm just trying to get everything in here as I come up on the Christmas you know, holiday and everything like that. Work has been a little bit slower because of not being able to kind of ship things for places, and other places are also shutting down as you know they prepare for their own year-end and things like that. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is I'm not going to waste any more of your time for this intro. I'm going to kick you over to a musical break before I get into those mini-reviews. I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. I am a poor boy to pa-ra-pa-bum-bum 
la bum bum, rap la bum bum. Shall I play for you for rap la bum bum? On my drum. for my first mini review of this week is going to be The Brides of Dracula from 1960. This is directed by Terrence Fisher, and this comes from the screenplay that was done by Jimmy Sangster, Peter Bryan, and Edward Piercy, with Anthony Hines doing some uncredited work on it as well. This stars Peter Cushing, Martita Hunt, and Yvonne Monlar. This is a horror film that is from the United Kingdom, 
that is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being Vampire Hunter Van Helsing returns to Transylvania to destroy handsome bloodsucker Baron Meinster who has designs on beautiful young school teacher Marianne. Now, this is a movie that I remember watching fresh out of college, and I'll be honest, though, I didn't necessarily love it after that first viewing. I could see that it was solid, but not one that really stuck with me all that much. Now, I decided to give it a rewatch as part of my journey through the aughts here on this podcast. Now, this one is actually a sequel to The Horror of Dracula, but despite him being destroyed, there is still his plague of vampirism going around through Transylvania countryside. Now we see a beautiful young woman of Mary Ann who is portrayed by Monlar. Now she's on her way to a school where she's going to have a position of a student teacher. But on her way there, her coachman stops in the middle of the woods as there's a log in the road blocking it. As the coachman moves it out of the road and then gets back you know, on their journey, we see that somebody hitches a ride on the back. And then it comes to the next village that is the one right before her destination. She goes into the inn slash pub to wait. Now, while inside, the man who had stowed away pays the coachman, and then he ends up leaving her there. Now, she's quite upset as she feels she's going to be late for her new position, but the people around her are upset for a completely different reason, and they all leave the pub. Now, not too long after, there is another coach that arrives that has a Baroness Meinster, who is portrayed by Hunt. Now, she sits with Marianne and then invites her back to the castle, offering her a ride in the morning to the school that she works at. The young woman agrees to this, but at the castle, she finds a young man on a balcony below her. When she questions the Baroness, it turns out that it is actually her son. Marianne can't sleep and goes out onto the balcony, and she thinks she sees the young Baron on his balcony looking to commit suicide. She goes on there to stop him, but then learns that his mother claims he's insane, and he is showing that he's not. And she agrees to help him with his escape. Now, it begins a nightmare by doing this as the Baron kills his mother and then leaves the castle. There's a servant of Greta, who is Frida Jackson, who informs her about her horrible mistake. Now, the following morning, Dr. Van Helsing, who is Peter Cushing, finds Marianne asleep in the woods. He wakes her and inquires about how she got there. And then it appears that he's actually coming out to this remote village because he is there to investigate vampirism, as he believes that there is this plague going around still and he's going about proving this as well as trying to put an end to it all the while meinster the baron that is meets marianne at the school that she works at he proposes and then we know that he's the creature that van helsing is after but can he stop him from turning the young marianne and the others at this finishing school now that's where i'm gonna leave my recap of this movie and this is actually kind of interesting is that this is the sequel to, like I said, Horror of Dracula. So this is the second vampire film in their line of Dracula horror films from Hammer, like their Hammer production company. On top of this, this is a co-production with Universal International for some of their theatrical releases in some countries. Is also kind of an interesting thing there, since you know they did the original run back in the like 30s and into the 40s. I do like that this though is keeping the continuity that Dracula has been destroyed, but there are still vampires in the area. We have Cushing back to reprise his role of Van Helsing. And there's some interesting trivia that I found that this movie has some rule changes that doesn't really bother me so much. Is that in the previous film they said that vampires cannot become bats, but in this one they're able to. I'm under the assumption here that this necessarily isn't violating the continuity. Is that there could be just different species of vampires where these ones are able to do it. And that Van Helsing has kind of discovered this through some of his research. I think this movie's pretty interesting is that... It's kind of establishing the same 
plot lines that we had in the original Dracula is that this Baroness we think is going to be the vampire and then invites, you know, this young Marianne back to her castle. But then we see that that's not necessarily the case and is actually a bit of a swerve. What we do learn, though, is the truth, and it's hard to fault her for what she's doing, is that she does have her son chained up because she knows what he is, and she can't destroy him because she does love him, but she's also trying to protect him from running wild, but she is doing some horrible things to keep him alive. And the last aspect here is that I do really like this idea that we have this finishing school so nearby and that the vampire attacks there. They know that Van Helsing knows how to destroy him, and the casket is moved to a different location, which is kind of reminiscent of what Dracula does as well in the novel. I also like the idea that we have all these young women that the vampire can feed on. They really don't utilize this as much as I would have liked. And I think that for this movie being 85 minutes for its runtime is a little bit boring to me for whatever reason. I do think that the acting is good, though. I think that it's great, you know, having the legendary cushion in this movie as he just does an amazing job as Van Helsing. I think Hunt is solid as this creepy Baroness, and I also like that she's established at first, and then we get to kind of, like, reveal with her. Monlar is gorgeous. I also think she plays this role very well. David Peel plays the young Baron, and I think he's good as our villain. I also like how he is established, much like his mother, and then the reveal of their roles to the truth. And then the rest of the cast thought rounded this out for what was needed. I thought the effects were fine here. We actually don't get a whole lot of them, to be honest, but that's something you get with Hammer a lot. There's a bit of blood, and it's a bit orange, and I really enjoyed it for its nostalgia reasons for me. I think the look of the vampires and their fangs are good. The bat effects that we get, you can tell they're a rubber, and I'll be honest, I've seen some movies after this that do it you know, just as good as they do here, so I'm not going to hold it against this movie. It just isn't great, but I'll take it. The cinematography is well done, and I come to expect that from Terrence Fisher with being the director here. And I'd also say that the set pieces that we get here do definitely are you know, from the past, and pretty faithful to what I would assume is what things would look like back then, so I do give a lot of credit to that. I think this is lacking a bit, so it's not so much, you know, into the good range for me, but I think this is a solid Hammer horror film. I think it's a solid sequel to Horrors of Dracula. Not as good as that one, in my opinion, and I think this is just a, you know, pretty solid vampire movie in general, and I came in with a 6.5 out of 10 on this movie. Then I have for you, I rewatched The Platform, now, this was originally covered on episode number 22, which was Centennial Club number 5 on Journey with a Cinephile. So if you want to hear my full in-depth thoughts, I would recommend going back to that episode to kind of check them out there. But, just to get you back up to speed for this movie, it goes by the original title of El Hoyo. This is from 2019 technically, but it got its 2020 wider release. This is directed by Galder Gutzela Utoria. This is from a screenplay by David DiSola, who also did the story, and then he co-wrote the screenplay with Pedro Rivero. This stars Ivan Masigu, Zoran Eleguar, and Antonia San Juan. This is a horror sci-fi thriller that is from Spain that is currently sitting on a 7.0 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is a vertical prison with one cell per level, two people per cell, only one food platform, and two minutes per day to feed, an endless nightmare trapped in this thing called The Hole. Now, as I said, I'm really going to kind of just gloss over some of the things that kind of pop back up to me here is that I think it's interesting is that this feels like a very similar concept to those Facebook posts where it'd be like, would you spend X amount of time in a prison to have your student loan debt wiped out? Or like, would you live in this cabin with no internet or television for X amount of time for X amount of dollars? 
because we have Gorang here, who is our main character, as he is there voluntarily. But then we have another character, uh, Tara Magasi, who is there for a different reason, as he had two choices, is go to prison or go to a mental hospital. And then we have Mogiri, who is another one of Gorang's cellmates. Now, she is there for a completely different reason and feels like this is an experiment. Now, she does have a little bit more knowledge as that she used to work in this place. But it's also just kind of interesting is that these people are here for a multitude of different reasons. And it could also somewhat be of a like social kind of experiment. What I really do think this movie is kind of pointing out, though, is capitalism and how it can be problematic. It's interesting here is that Goatring presents the idea that if they take a socialist approach, everyone in this place could eat. It is ironic that his older cellmate calls him a communist, as his cellmate is really embodying, like, the boomer mentality. Now, but he does bring up an amazing point, though, Goring does, that is, is that if they just take what they need, leave the rest, instead of gorging, then everyone could get what they want. Now, this is also an interesting kind of allegory for trickle-down economics, is that all of the top are taking the money, which in this case is food, and then the master just being told that it will trickle down to them. This is just a great allegory of why this doesn't work, is that we see what, we see what happens when somebody jumps from a higher level from being at the bottom, is that you just become as bad as the person that was there before you, and you feel entitled since before you, you know, they did this as well. I do like that Goring gets jaded, but he never fully loses his faith. We have an interesting look at Descending into Madness here as well, as Goring is haunted by those he's come in contact with, is that his two cellmates become the voice of good and evil. And then I also like that we never fully understand if anybody's backstory that we're hearing is necessarily true. And this becomes very prevalent with the character of Miharu. And then it's also a good allegory here when Goring treats her like a human, is that if you treat people around you with respect instead of being below you, and below your circumstances, then, you know, everybody can kind of, it would just make everything a much better world and place. Now, the ending did confuse me the first time, but the second viewing, I think I understand what's going on here, and it's actually a very bleak kind of outlook on everything, and it kind of reflects on my thoughts on the state of the world right now, is that no matter how much we try to change things, nothing actually changes. And then kind of going along with this is that Imu Harguri believes that this change will happen spontaneously. Goring shows that you have to threaten for them to change. And I think this is kind of an interesting thing that gets relayed with like how, and like a parallel to how Martin Luther King wanted everything to be done with dialogue. But we saw that that doesn't necessarily happen. And then you have somebody like Malcolm X who comes along and shows that you might have to do something that's a little more violent. And we're seeing that now with protests that turn into riots. Sometimes if people aren't gonna listen to you, then you have to do what you can to get them to change. Think the acting is solid across the board i think the effects are actually really good here and what i really love is the cinematography to show as goring kind of starts to lose his mind so i love this bleak outlook on this in this movie i think there's some really good social commentary and some really good allegories here my rating has come up from my last viewing of this and i'm now sitting on an 8.5 out of 10 for this movie and then i end up watching open 24 hours from 2018 but this is another one that is getting its wide release in 2020 this is written and directed by Padrich Reynolds. This stars Vanessa Grassi, Brendan Fletcher, and Emily Tennant. This is a horror film from Canada that is currently sitting on a 5.3 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, after setting her serial killer boyfriend on fire, a paranoid delusional woman gets a job at an all-night gas station. Now, this is another movie that I saw shown on people's end-of-year rankings for 2020. I figured I would check it out as, you know, wanting to ensure that my list was rounded out with, you know, what other people were 
you know, pretty high on. I knew the basic premise coming in, but not necessarily where it was going. And then we're kind of getting at first the aftermath of the events we will see. There is blood everywhere at the Deer gas station. And our main character of Mary, who is Grassi, is filling out an application to work there when she stops at a question of, have you been convicted of a felony? She ends up marking yes, and that's when her manager of Ed comes in to check on her. They go through the interview process, and despite her lack of experience, he has a good feeling and hires her on the spot, and she starts that night, giving her a ride home as her friend of Debbie, who is tenant. She's stuck by her friend's side despite everything, which we learn is that Mary is out on parole. She was dating a serial killer who made her watch as he killed. Then to fight back, she ended up setting him on fire. Now, she ended up still doing prison time, for watching as he killed many of his victims. Now her parole officer is Tom Dugan, who is Daniel O'Meara. He comes to visit her and she and scolds her for not having her home phone plugged in. Now, there's a very good reason for this as she's unstable. When she arrived home and before Tom showed up, she saw her ex, who is James, portrayed by Cole Vigu, as he's killing a victim in their bathtub. It isn't real, but she is taking medication to try to keep this in check. Tom wants her to succeed, but she's worried that if she reveals what she sees, she'll be locked away forever. And then we also learn that she is terrified of the telephone and the rain, thanks to James. Now she shows up to her first shift with Debbie, and we meet her co-worker of Bobby, who is Fletcher, as he shows her around, giving her the ropes. And he takes a liking to Mary immediately. Now there isn't much of like to the job, and he shares that the graveyard shift is pretty boring. He will come to check on her, though, per orders of Ed. Now, things seem to go pretty smooth for the most part, but she is hit on by an inappropriate trucker portrayed by Tommy May. We also see that there's someone dressed in a rain slicker, much like James used to be. Now, she knows that she burned him and that he's in prison, but did he somehow escape, or is this someone else who is stalking this poor woman who is trying to get her life back on track? Now, that's where I'm going to leave my recap of this movie, and the first thing this movie is really trying to do is present the idea of the unreliable narrator. Mary was pretty innocent in all of this, except that she didn't turn James in when she realized what he was doing. I think the idea here is that technically she's an accomplice for how long it went on, but she's not necessarily willing. She was afraid of him, and this goes on for so long that she was convicted and does her time in prison. Now, there are people that want her locked up for the rest of her life, much like her ex-boyfriend, seeing that these things that she did have messed her up pretty bad to the point where she needs to take medication and still hallucinating. For her, she doesn't want to reveal this as she's not really sure what she's seeing, if it's real or not, and she's afraid that if she does, she's going to be locked away forever. Now, this movie ends up becoming a slasher. We first see this idea when Debbie is attacked as she's leaving the gas station after dropping off Mary. The person that attacks her is dressed up as James was, and when he was doing his killings, is that he would wear a rain slicker, much like Stephen King had set up in the dead zone for that killer that he has there. Now, I was wondering if this really happened or who actually did it. One of my first thoughts was that it was Mary and that we're seeing things a bit out of order. And I will say that we get an interesting thing here that's a little bit different than normal for a slasher film like this before it finally sets in to, you know, the movie that we're used to. And then it's pretty standard from there, if I'm going to be honest. I was impressed with the effects, though. It did look like they went pretty much practical with everything. And this movie does get violent and quite bloody. It doesn't go exploitation level of gore, but we are seeing that enough to make it where we can understand the brutality. What is working here is that we don't see it all. There is a bit left up to our imagination, and we're using things like blood on characters along with their reactions to make it feel worse as well. Now, there is a bit of CGI with some of the blood spray, but it's pretty quick and only get a couple of shots that I had noticed. And I will also give credit to the cinematography. 
thought the acting was pretty solid across the board. I thought Grazi does well in acting like someone that's unstable. We will get things from her like she'll zone out or her expression will change that of dread. And that all worked for me in making me feel like she could possibly be losing it. I like seeing Fletcher here. It's a bit convenient that he comes back, but I'll take it. And he's a character actor who I feel like does a lot of these type of horror films that I'm always glad to see because I think he does... He really takes all of his roles pretty seriously. This movie needed more characters to progress, so that's why I feel like he also comes back. Tenet is solid along with Vigue, Omira, and the rest. Someone that I really like here is the character of Karen Rogers, who is Selena Giles. She is in the movie a lot, but I think it's pretty interesting for her character and why she shows up. Now, that's all I really kind of want to go over for this movie. It's in the slasher genre, but I think it does a little bit different, so it's not necessarily a replica of what we get. I think pretty much everything, for the most part, was pretty solid across the board. I didn't really have a lot to complain about. So, like I said, I think this is a good movie and came in with an 8 out of 10 here. And the next two movies that I have for you are both rewatches here for 2020. And the first one is Vivarium. This is technically from 2019, but got its release here this year. This is directed by Lorcan Finnegan, who also came up with the story, along with Garrett Shanley, who, all, who wrote the screenplay. Now, this stars Imogen Poots, Daniel Ryan, and Molly McCann, as well as Jesse Eisenberg. This is a comedy horror mystery sci-fi film that is a co-production between Ireland, Belgium, Denmark, and Canada. It is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a young couple looking for the perfect home find themselves trapped in a mysterious labyrinth-like neighborhood of identical houses. Now, this is another one that... Because I've already kind of went over a full review, which you can find on episode 26 for like a full review there. I would definitely recommend that. So I'm just going to kind of go over some of the key points, which for me is that I really like how this movie really has some good social commentary here. Now, I had brought up previously that part of the idea came for this is that in Ireland, right before the economic collapse of the late 2000s, that there was a bunch of housing developments like this that popped up. Now, being that I'm from the United States, it's kind of interesting is that we saw this even far back as the 1970s. And I mean, the whole thing here is that they're all carbon copies of each other and it cuts down on costs and drives up profit margins. So there's a little bit of social commentary there about capitalism. And then this also has a little bit of creature feature in it that I kind of like is that we get to hear some of the stuff. We don't actually necessarily get to see it, but I mean, we kind of get to know more and more about this boy that they have to raise and everything like that, that we know that he, there's just something not quite right about him. I also like that this world that they're in is kind of like ours, but it's not quite right, is that there's no real color. All the food they eat is very similar to like what we would, but it's very bland and flavorless. The art in the house is just paintings of like that room that it's in or just like the outside of the house. The sun isn't just right, and then the clouds all look fake, and I mean all the houses are exactly the same, and then when you get up to look, that it's kind of like looking into an endless kind of abyss of the same exact thing. That's very Twilight Zone, I would say, because I have been watching the original series, so that's kind of a cool thing that I thought there. I do know some people have an issue with how long this runs. I definitely didn't think it was as bad with my second viewing, but I definitely thought that the first time around. But I mean, I will say, it does feel like a Twilight Zone episode. thought the acting was really good. I do have to give a lot of credit here to Imogen Putz here, the star of the movie. I think that she really just shows the most range and the most depth of character. I think Eisenberg is interesting here as he pushes her humanity and then, I mean, she is saddened by the rift that comes between them. 
but I thought that his sarcasm adds something to the character. I thought the rest of the cast rounded out for what was needed. I think the effects, there's not a whole lot of it. There's a little bit of CGI, but I think for the most part, the effects are really good. And I also really like the soundtrack that we get with this movie. It gives it an interesting vibe, and they do some really good things with the sound there as well. So for me, I'm a big sucker for social commentary, so I can really appreciate this movie. I don't know if I'll ever go higher, because after this second viewing here, is I kind of stayed pretty much the same with my rating on this movie, is I think this is a good one for sure. I would definitely recommend it, but I definitely come in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And then my second review that I'm going to do here of one I've rewatched is Color Out of Space. Now this came out on episode number 12, where it was a featured review there, so I would definitely recommend if you want more in-depth thoughts to go check that out. Just some info on the movie, though, before I jump into it, is this is another one that is getting its 2020 release, but it's from 2019. This is directed by Richard Stanley, who also came up with the story here with Scarlett Aramis. This stars Nicolas Cage, Jolie Richardson, and Madeline Arthur. This is a horror mystery sci-fi thriller that is a co-production of the United States, Malaysia, and Portugal. This is currently sitting on a... 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being a secluded farm is struck by a strange meteorite which has apocalyptic consequences for the family living there and possibly the world. Now I actually saw this one very early on into the year as that it was at the Gateway Film Center and I did give it a rewatch this time around with Jamie who she definitely said this was a pretty good movie but it was very weird. But just some of the things that I wanted to re-highlight for this time around is that it's kind of fitting with some of the social commentary that we also get in this movie. Is that we have this character of Ward who is going around and, you know, checking the water in this area. And it's kind of fitting that at the time of this movie was coming out that there were regulations being lifted and certain precautions from the government. And then a lot of this is that the mayor of this town of Tuma... She has big plans as they're about to build a reservoir, and I love the apocalyptic backdrop that the synopsis was stating, is that if this water does become contaminated, it's going to spread thanks to this, you know, giant dam that's going to give a bunch of people the, you know, water in the area. And then from there, we kind of get a little bit of like a body snatcher, like alien type takeover thing with an infection as well, kind of mixed into that. Now, they're not so much trying to take over the world, but it is affecting people that it comes in contact with. And then for this movie, I do like that we kind of establish a little bit of a norm for this family. But the only person I don't really care for is Nicolas Cage. I think he went over the top too early, and he's just kind of weird throughout. I do like, though, that he goes back and forth with, you know, being different since the entity kind of takes him over and it's messing with him. But I personally thought that the best actress in this movie, though, was portrayed by Lavinia here of Arthur. I, you know, kind of saw a little bit of my childhood in her in that she's, you know, gothic-ish. She's definitely, you know, messing around with, like, the witchy type stuff. I honestly think it's a legit phase for hers because she does still like normal things, which is much like myself. And then I also kind of think that Richardson as the mother here, it was a little bit too subdued and kind of fades into the background for this. I do like all the references to different Lovecraft material since it is based off of a short story from him. Uh, Ward is wearing a Missatonic University sweatshirt, you know, a reanimator reference. I think his name is a direct reference to Charles Dexter Ward. And then there also Arkham is nearby. And then another person here that I like is that we have Tommy Chung. It's fun that he has an appearance here as his character of Ezra. It almost feels like he's his character from Cheech and Chung, who kind of retires to this area, and then he's scared of the government and just living off the grid. And one thing I want to go back to with Ward here is that I do like he's our investigator, but I did have an issue that there's a long stretch where he disappears, and I, even though, you know, I feel like he's supposed to be our hero, but we don't get him there. 
Um, I did have an issue the first time of watching it, this one being a little bit too long. I like how it has this surreal feel, and I and then I'll get more into the effects and how it's shot here in just a second, but I do think this film does meander a bit in the later second act. I do like how everything ends up and kind of the implications from there. The story's interesting. I just feel like it's unfocused for a good stretch. I think the effects here are really good. They go practical with as much as they could, and then we do have some CGI that I don't have an issue with because I feel like it's just there to kind of enhance things, which I'm always a fan of. thought the soundtrack and sound design was good here. I really have to give credit to kind of like the animal noises as well as the sounds that this entity is giving off because it is quite creepy. And all we can hear is this high-pitched like tone, and but these people are hearing it as something different, which I think is kind of a cool thing. Now, this one movie unfortunately kind of came down for me after this second viewing. I like the adaptation though that Stanley did here kind of a tough thing to play with especially because this color is supposed to be one that we've never seen before so it does make it quite tough there i like the implications that is happening from this kind of meteorite crashing here i just have some slight issues with stuff here and there there's some good concepts though in social commentary this is another one i thought was a good movie and came in with an 8 out of 10 on this one as well and that's all I'm going to have for mini reviews for this week. So what I am going to do, though, is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Hello, my name is Audrey, and this is my husband, Henry. We don't want to hurt you or your baby. We feel this would be the best way for you to go missing. Dr. Walsh, huh? Morning. Here to clean your drive. No, no, everything's okay. Thank you so much for the book. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Assuming you've seen some ghosts, huh? No one has more time than a grieving family. We can do this. He's coming back to us. And for my first featured review on this episode is going to be Anything for Jackson. This is from 2020. This is directed by Justin G. Dick. It is written by Keith Cooper. It stars Sheila McCarthy, Julian Richings, and Constantina Metalos. And this also features Josh Crudus, Yannick Bisson, Lynette Ware, Claire Cavalhero, and Scott Cavalhero. Daxon William Lund, Caitlin Lieb, Rebecca LaMarch, Jane Eastwood, I Barrett, Marianne Sawchuk, and Michaela Bisson. This is a horror film that is from Canada, and it is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a bereaved Satanist couple 
kidnap a pregnant woman so they can use an ancient spell book to put their dead grandson's spirit into her unborn child, but end up summoning more than they bargained for. Now, this is another movie that I was hearing a lot of buzz about and being one of the better horror films from 2020. I made this a point to check it out, and I should give credit here to Mr. Watson, Mark Nato, and others for putting this on my radar. Then after reading the synopsis, I figured I would go ahead and make this a featured review here. And I was actually going to do a different movie, but then changed my mind when this one sounded much more interesting than the one that I originally had picked out. Then to give a little bit more backstory and a little bit more information on some of these players here is that Dick is a director that has 34 projects. This would be the only one in horror, and the only other one that I've ever seen from him is Bounty Hunters that has Trish Stratus in it, as I picked that one up when I was working at Family Video to check out as a pre-street. And it does look like he's done a lot of rom-coms, especially ones around the Christmas, like holiday and everything like that. And then Cooper is the writer, and he has 32 credits. Aside from this movie, he has done a something called Dead Lawyers, which is a TV movie from 2004 that I've never heard of. And it looks like this duo has worked together previously with some of the rom-coms. And Cooper did have some credits with Poseidon from 2006 and Superman Returns as well. Now, one of the stars is McCarthy, who looks to have been doing some horror as of late, as she has 137 acting credits. Her first movie was a TV film, The Possession of Michael D., which is a horror film from back in 1995. Then previous to this, she did some couple of TV episodes in the genre, and then I've seen her in Antiviral, Stillborn, along with Level 16, The Day After Tomorrow, and Die Hard 2. Richings is a great character actor in my opinion and has 215 acting credits, much like McCarthy. He did some horror television before being in Mimic from 1997 and Urban Legend from 1998, both of which I've seen. Aside from that, I've seen him in Wrong Turn as Three Finger, the TV series from Stephen King of Kingdom Hospital, Skinwalkers, Dead Silence, Saw 4, Survival of the Dead, Bag of Bones the miniseries, the Witch and a Christmas Horror Story, and I've also seen him in Cube, Naked Lunch, X-Men The Last Stand, The Colony, and Man of Steel. And then the last one I'll cover is Mantelos, as this one's a little bit anticlimactic being compared to Richings, as she has 14 acting credits. Her first in genre was a short of Simple Simon. She followed that up the same year with Damaged in 2018. Aside from that, she was in one episode of Paranormal 911 and a short called Morbus. So to get into this, much as the synopsis states, we have this older couple of Audrey, who is McCarthy, and her husband, Henry, who is Richings. This movie is strategic in syncing up a happy song as they're about, you know, going about their normal morning, and it all takes a turn when someone arrives and Henry goes to bring them in. This person is Shannon Becker, who is Mantelos. She's been kidnapped, and she's also pregnant. Henry offers not to go to work that day to help Audrey, but she kind of points out that they are not supposed to change their routine to look suspicious. As he goes to leave, Rory, who is Yannick Bisson, shows up to plow the snow from their driveway, and it takes some convincing, but Henry does get him to leave. Now, they've soundproofed the room that they're keeping Shannon in, but that still, you don't want to take any sort of chances. Now, Henry does make the mistake at work that when he doesn't stick to the plan when an agitated patient causes him to slip up in what he tells his receptionist, it should be pointed out, Henry is a doctor, and Shannon was one of his patients. And I'm assuming he's like a gynecologist, or at least, you know, deals a lot with women that are pregnant. And he is the one that has informed her that, of course, she is pregnant. Now, the reason that she's been taken is that they want to put their deceased grandson, who is Jackson, portrayed by Lund, they want to put his soul into the baby that Shannon is carrying. They've got the idea that 
they're part of a cult that meets the local library of Satanists. Henry had inquired about an ancient book that contains a spell from another member who is Ian, portrayed by Crudus. Ian doesn't realize that, that Henry has tracked down this book and they've actually been using it as well. This older couple performs the ritual and they see Jackson. It looks like something smashes him though during this ritual and a large entity with a bird-like skull head appears. Audrey is convinced that the spell worked and they start to see spirits throughout the house. Some are quite eerie and terrifying. They meddle with forces they fully don't understand and brought in entities that are much stronger and terrifying than they expected. A detective, Bellows, who is portrayed by Ware, is looking into Shannon's disappearance and Henry has said some things that are leading her closer to them. Now, will they be able to finish what they started or will everything come crashing down around them? Now, that's where I'm going to leave my recap for this movie. And where I want to start is that I really love the premise of this movie. It sounds interesting is that we have this couple of older Satanists. They weren't always this way, but it seems like they've converted due to the tragedies that happened to their daughter as well as their grandson. Now, they think they can bring their grandson back by following this new religion. And that is completely believable to me. They are pretty well to do on top of all that so they can afford to get the book that they now have in their possession and we can even see that audrey and henry they aren't bad people they're just doing bad things due to grief that has struck their family what i also like is that this movie is showing us how hard doing things like this would be audrey is able to do easy spells but then they're in over their head with what they're doing with this major one they don't fully complete it either so they have some terrifying things that are happening and it is too much for them and they need to involve Ian who has seems to be been studying this most of his younger life or at least it would seem that way. It also is hard to get away with committing some of these crimes. When the pressure is on Henry makes mistakes that create a path for Detective Bellows. This works for the believability for this movie in my opinion because I think sometimes you get in these movies where you know people can just go ahead and kill someone and hide the body and everything and it's you know that easy to kind of get away with it or that easy to actually kill these people so having this kind of realism makes it where i would expect things who aren't you know that good at what they're doing to make the mistakes that they do now i did watch this movie with jamie and i did feel bad for a stretch where the satanists are holding a meeting they're doing a legitimate prayer that started to recite but they're just doing a bastardized version of it this made her uncomfortable which made me feel bad as she was raised catholic and personally though, I love that touch. The concept that demons come out at 2.30 in the morning or around about then, as it is the inverted of when Jesus passed away, that type of care when it's taken just kind of ticks boxes for me. And I love horror movies that look into, you know, religions like that we get here. Now where I think I want to take this next would be the scares. This is mostly coming from the different ghostly entities. This might be a bit of a spoiler, but they're all stuck in purgatory. The ritual doesn't work quite like they thought it would, and we get some really great scares from this. Some would be classified as jump scares, and I really like what they do with this like flossing ghost who is portrayed by Sawchuck, as well as this trick-or-treat ghost that is portrayed by Barrett. Most of all of this was done with practical effects which was quite creepy. Now there is some CGI here, but none of it really looked bad to me. This was really there just kind of enhance what was needed. And I'll be honest, I was quite spooked quite a few times while I'm watching this. Now the acting would be up next and McCarthy and Richings are just great in their roles. They feel like this nice old couple that have gotten mixed up into something that they really don't know enough about. They're believable. And when things mess up, it really makes a lot of sense. They just fit perfectly for that. And then Mentalos is solid as well. She's attractive and I really like her performance as this soon-to-be mother. It was unplanned and it's scary because 
she's actually alone here where she doesn't have a whole lot of family around her and she's got to take this on by herself we see though that this is something that can turn her life around before she was taken and she looks terrified and she does great at being this captive you know just trying to survive Critis is really good in this secondary role along with Bisson, Ware, and the rest of the cast. And I want to give shoutouts to all the ghosts as well. They really make things with that sense of creepiness and with their performances and their looks really kind of help to that as well. Now for the last thing I want to go over here would be the soundtrack. The opening song worked well for the dichotomy of that scene. Throughout, I would say that the soundtrack also fit for what was needed, and the sound design really helps to make things creepy. What is interesting is that at times, this makes some of the scenes even more scary, especially when they're using the concept of purgatory on top of that. So I do have to give a lot of credit to the filmmakers here. So before I close this review out here, I do have a little bit of trivia that I'm going to share from the IMDb page. Now this movie used for the bulk of it was actually the writer Keith Cooper's house. This was used for, like I said, a majority here, but however, Henry and Audrey's bedroom and Ian's basement was filmed at Justin Dick's house. The director wanted to hide three hidden ghost scenes within the movie, and then as of yet, no one has found and pointed them out at least. The entire movie was made for $250,000. The filmmakers met with Bill Marks at Vortex Studios, pitched the idea, and sold the movie in five minutes. Then they started pre-production the next morning. Jackson's bedroom was filmed in a childhood movie theater the writer and director grew up watching movies in. Their first movies they saw in this theater were Return of the Living Dead, Back to the Future, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So it also kind of seems like on top of them having worked on some of these rom-coms, they actually seem to have known each other since they were like teens at least, which is kind of a cool thing and kind of makes sense to some of the stuff we get. In the Book of Boar, Cooper added a fun line in Latin for anyone trying to read the book in this movie. It's Tibi Gratias Ego Tibi Quia Ponoqui es quartis. I don't know if I said any of that right because I've never taken Latin, so that was just me kind of, you know, giving it a stab, which does translate to thank you for looking so closely. And this film was released exclusively on Shudder, a digital horror movie streaming program, which if you didn't know that and you're listening to this podcast, I'm quite shocked. In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, and that's all the trivia I have there. So just to close this out, I thought this movie was really good. I'm glad again that I didn't sleep on this one. And I really like the concepts that we're getting here with the casting of McCarthy and Richings in this role works. I'm a sucker for horror movies that play with the idea of religion like we get here. The rest of the actors do a really great job in their roles. This had some scares that got me. And I think the effects along with the sound design really help here. Now I'd rate this as a really good movie bordering on great. This one I will be looking forward to revisiting and another one that's a contender for my end of the year list. So my rating on this one is going to be a 9 out of 10. So I'm not going to do a spoiler section since this movie is so new and I would like people to kind of check this out. But what I am going to do though is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Fifty-three years ago, nine people set up camp in the Ural Mountains in Russia. It had become known as the Dyatlov Pass incident. Are you scared? No. We're recreating a trip in which nine people died. Yeah, what, like 50 years ago? Time to go. It's a test, you know? Man against the elements. Guys, say hi from Imdel! Come look at this! What is it? The GPS is all screwed up. We should just leave. By the time we get packed up and get moving, we're going to be hiking in the dark.
to reset it now. Ah! Ah! They tried to bury us so it looked like an accident. Help! For my second featured review here, I'm going to do the one that is going to be the more wintry kind of base as this does take place actually in the Ukraine where it's very snowy and everything like that. And this movie is going to be Devil's Pass. This actually went by the original title though of The Detlov Pass Incident. And this was directed by Rennie Harlan. It was written by Vikram Veet. This stars Holly Goss, Matt Stucco. Luke Albright, and then it also featured Ryan Hawley, Gemma Atkinson, Nikolay Boutin, Nellie Nielsen, Valerie Fedorovich, Alexei Kink, Sergei Labanov, Oleg Kurlov, Dmitry Miviv, Richard Allen Reed, Anton Kilmov, and Igor Kalakachok. Now, if I mess up any of those names, I do apologize. I am trying my best. Some of those mostly are pretty foreign there as we went along. But this is a horror mystery thriller that is a co-production between Russia and Finland. This is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 2.5 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is a group of students go to the location of the infamous Detlov Pass incident to make a documentary. But things take a turn for the worse as the secret of what happened there is revealed. Now, this is a movie that I originally had never heard of until I got into listening to podcasts. I believe that originally this popped up due to the fact that it was found footage. So I think that someone had this on like a found footage challenge or something along those lines. Now, I'm not completely sure, though, as I also feel like this one was covered on a few different podcasts I listened to as well. And aside from that, I came in pretty blind for the movie, but I did know this was based on the Detloff Pass incident, which has popped up time to time recently as an unexplained mystery. And I believe I watched something recently that kind of quoted this or uses as a basis, something along those lines. Now, before I get into my recap of the movie, I'm going to kind of go over some featured notes about some of the major players here. We have Harlan, who is our director, and he's someone that I recognize his name almost immediately. Now, I knew him from originally, I think, from A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, but I've also seen his other horror films of Exorcist The Beginning, Deep Blue Sea, and The Covenant. The only one that I haven't is Prison, and then aside from that, he's also directed 23 films, and then of those, I've seen Die Hard 2, Die Harder, Cliffhanger, and Five Days of War. He does seem to kind of stick more to action-y type films. Now, our writer is Veet. And he's only written three films, and the only other one in horror is one called Darkness Rising, which I don't think I've heard of. And then for our actors and actresses, the first one is Goss, who this is the only film that she has been in. And then we have Stooki, has only been in four, and this is the only one that I've seen. And he was in two other horror films, though, of one called Rose, A Love Story, and another one called Hollow. Have never seen either of those, of course. And then there's Albright that I'm going to go over here. He has been in eight films, and the only other horror film, though, was one called Purgatory Road. Now, I've only seen him in this movie here, and but I mean, this isn't uncommon, though, when you're working with found footage movies, as they tend to have actors that are kind of lesser known, so that does make a lot of sense for that. Now, we start this off with a bit of backstory. Now, we're back in February of 1959. Nine Russian hikers went into the mountains and then died. The place where it happened is now known as the Detlov Pass. There is this interesting glimpse at a couple in a night vision, like being filmed, and the woman is crying. 
This felt like a bit like the Blair Witch Project, which I believe heavily influenced this movie. Now here, though, we're following Holly King, who is portrayed by Goss. Now she's really interested in the events of this mystery at the Detloff Pass. Working with her is a film student of Jensen Day, who is Stokey. Now, they explore a few possibilities here early in this movie. The most commonly accepted one is that those that died had madness induced by hypothermia. Now, Jensen believes it was a Yeti, but this is a bit out there along with the idea that it could be aliens. Together, though, they plan an expedition to go to this pass, make a documentary to see if they can get to the bottom of what really happened. Coming with them is a sound woman of Denise Evers, who is portrayed by Atkinson. They also hire two experienced climbers of John Patrick Hauser Jr., who's portrayed by Albright. Now, I should say, he goes by the nickname of JP. Then the other one coming with them is Andy Thatcher. He's portrayed by Ryan Hawley. Now, their journey takes them to modern-day Ukraine, which is, this passes in the Ural Mountains. Now, we do end up knowing that this this footage that we're watching had gone missing, and it was put on, I think, somewhere in Russia, but then that was hacked by a group like WikiLeaks, and that is what we're watching as they put it on their website. It appears the Ukrainian government was trying to cover this up, and we also get an interview here of a member of the Mansi tribe that is indigenous to the area that has an explanation for what happened. Regardless, our group goes to the Ukraine. They go to a bar there that the Detlov group also went to the night before they embarked. Now, we get some weird stuff happening here immediately. Like, there's a hiker that was supposed to go and back in the, the 50s, and he ended up not because he came down and got sick or got hurt or something along those lines. Now, he's being kept in a mental hospital, but when they go to interview him, the people that worked at, like the orderlies and doctors are saying that that person died. We do get to see an old man in the window, though, who's holding up a sign warning them of something, but they can't read the Russian word. Now, a man by the name of Sergei, who is portrayed by Butinin, takes them to Vizay, which is the closest village, and he also gets them an interview with his aunt, who is Ala, who is portrayed by Nielsen, who happened upon the Detlov group, you know, on their fateful day, and one of the people that helped discover their bodies. But she mentions that there's two other hikers here that weren't revealed in the original research, which kind of confuses everybody, but then they kind of just move along, thinking that she might just be old. Now, the group goes into the mountains, and strange things start to happen. They find weird footprints in the snow that are much bigger than human. Now, could this be a Yeti? But the weird thing is that there's only a few steps, and then they disappear. This group ends up making it to the pass, where they get there much faster than expected, and they find things are quite odd when they get to this location as well. And that's where I'm going to leave my recap for this movie, as that gets you up to speed. Now, I know I established in my intro, but I really wanted to move first into that this is a found footage movie. I feel that we're getting the believability here that we, you know, need for a type of movie like this. This is a documentary film crew, and they're out there investigating what happened, so I believe they would film as much of what they do, because, I mean, you're trying to get as much footage as you can that could possibly be usable. Of course, there are some convenient things that happen and are caught on film, but I expect that as well. Jensen loves his camera, so I would believe that he would film everything that he does. Holly also reminds me a lot of Heather from the Blair Witch Project in that this was her idea. She takes blame as things go on, and she's also blamed for things as well. But much like Jensen, she does sometimes push things too far when everything starts to fall apart as well. Now, what I also found interesting here is what I've kind of already went over is that Harlan was the director. I know him mostly from action films, but he also, as I said earlier, you know, did like Prison and A Nightmare on Elm Street 4. You don't normally see me a bigger name director like Harlan dipping into the found footage genre. Is that usually kind of for kind of unknown directors trying to break into something or like unknown actors as well. 
But I can see why they went to get him, though, where things end up in the end of this movie. What I also think I should introduce here and include as well is the movie does an amazing job at introducing things earlier in the movie and then going back to them later. So I'll give a lot of credit there to the writing. Things like aliens, the orange lights in the sky, yetis, and why there is radiation here all make sense of the final explanation that we get in this story. I won't spoil that here, but it all ties back in, and then I'm going to do a spoiler section at the end to explain a few things as well what I mean here. Now before moving away to something else, I love how the tension builds here as well. We know that we're getting a place that is pretty desolate. They're in a snowy mountain pass. Once they arrive there, their GPS, compass, and a watch that should all work via satellite this really isn't much different from like straining them in the middle of like the woods or like in a cabin out in the woods. This is actually scarier though for me because the elements are a factor here. The only have so much fresh water and food and I will say that there's an avalanche that happens that kind of cripples their chances of getting out alive as well and it makes things quite a bit more interesting from there on top of all that. Now what I think I should go next to would be the effects. I've already said that this is found footage and I like that angle. I think the cinematography works well to make this you know, feel cold from the environment. And what I do have issues with here though is the effects. This movie constantly is using the cameras messing up like a digital type thing. It doesn't look real for me. It does make sense as there is something here with radiation, but it got to be annoying for how often they would use that. And I'm just not a fan anymore of seeing that in movies. I might've been like the first time I saw it in a movie, but I've seen it enough where it just kind of gets on my nerves. There was something else here later on that was just not great CGI either. I understand what they're doing with it and why, but it just took me out of the movie because the graphics just weren't great in my opinion. But to get back onto some positives, I did like the acting. There is another one here where we have no one who's going to win awards, but they were believable. I could buy that Goss was a young student that was trying to make a name for herself by this research that she's doing. Stokey seems like a film student that's a bit awkward while also having a bit of arrogance about him. And then we have Albright and Holly really do well with these, you know, experienced climbers who are confident in their abilities. Then Atkinson is also solid as their sound woman. And I would say that the rest of the roles that we get are needed. And I didn't have any problems with the acting there. They all kind of fit in for what they were, you know, supposed to be doing and what was needed. Now, before I go into, you know, kind of my final thoughts here and then get you over to the spoilers, I'm going to do a little bit of trivia that I found on IMDb is that there is no Hauser Hall at the University of Oregon, because I should state that all the students here are supposedly from the University of Oregon. Now, there is a director trademark here, is that Harlan is from Finland, so one of the characters mentioned that he's using a Sunto compass, and this is a well-known Finnish manufacturer of compasses, and there's a small Finnish flag on JP's backpack as well. So, in closing, I think that the concept of this movie is really good, and this, you know, for this unexplained real event. I'm a fan of writing to introduce a bunch of, you know, throwaway concepts and lines that if you don't pay attention, you might miss them, but if you actually do, they play back into the explanation in the end. The acting was good enough to make me believe everyone in the movie. I can also buy the found footage angle here, but I did have some issues with the effects that were used. Not enough to ruin it though. The soundtrack fit for what was needed in my opinion. I don't really recall any music to my knowledge, so it was all ambient noise which does help to fit the realism, and I would rate this as a good movie. Not for everyone, being that it's found footage, but I'm a sucker for, you know, a lot of the concepts that we have introduced here. So I came in with a 8 out of 10 rating on this movie. Now what I am going to do though, before I go over that spoiler section, I will tell you, I will have time codes that if you want to skip over that and go to the end, I will be having a musical break there before I close out the show. But then to get into the spoilers, those are going to start right now. 
For this movie, we have that there's a military bunker in the Detlov Pass. Holly and Jensen discover it, but the door is frozen solid. They don't want to tell the rest, as Holly was already accused of faking the footprints around their camp. The common thought is that the government knew what they were doing and what is here, so the military set off charges that caused the avalanche that traps them. Now, what I mean there is that there's a point where Holly states that she had to register her trip with the government and had to get, you know, the proper permits and everything, so they knew exactly where they were going to be and when. Now, once this avalanche traps them, they seek refuge in the bunker, and it is there that they make some horrible discoveries. Now, this movie, what I really like about it is that it ties in the Philadelphia Experiment. This is supposedly something that happened where the USS Eldridge teleported, I believe, from Norfolk to, like, somewhere else. Then the crew was fused inside of the ship with some of the hull and, like, some of the stuff that was inside of it. Now, that's what was supposedly what happened. And then it supposedly went back in time slightly that it had disappeared from Norfolk and then it appeared elsewhere, but it appeared there like 10 minutes before it was supposedly supposed to leave. Now, this bunker was made over top of what the Mansi natives knew about. Now, there is a wormhole-type portal. The government is trying to keep it secret, hence why they're trying to kill them and then kill the members of the Dotlov group. I think this is kind of a cool thing to play with here because of what happens you know, kind of left is that they found this wormhole and it's, you know, first of its kind in, you know, known existence of man. Now, Allah also stated there were two other hikers that were found. When this group in the present goes into the bunker, they're attacked by these two monstrous human-like creatures that can teleport. They can't go through the metal of the doors or the walls, so it keeps them in, but they're a little bit bigger than humans, so the footprints that they saw in the snow are these, like, two individuals. Holly and Jensen also get locked in the cave with the portal. This is where it blew my mind. They went back into time because their only escape was to either go out of the door and be killed by these creatures, or they could go into the portal, and it turns out these two creatures that are attacking them are them from the future that they went back into the past and have been living up here for like 50 years. Allah saw the two extra hikers who were Holly and Jensen from the future, and they've mutated due to the radiation of going through this wormhole. I'm thinking a little bit of this probably is a black hole type aspect because that is supposedly like the gravity is so strong that it stretches them out, so it makes them a little bit taller. Now, the orange lights weren't aliens, but flares that both groups have shot up, you know, when things went south for them. The last thing is that the natives knew of this portal. Maybe not what it did, but they knew of its existence, which I think this is all just kind of genius for me, and it really just kind of got me excited when I got through this movie. So that's all I really wanted to delve into here for the spoiler section. So as I said, I'm going to kick you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. Let nothing you dismay Remember Christ the Savior Was born on Christmas Day To save us all from Satan's power When we were gone astray Oh, tidings of comfort and joy Comfort and joy, oh From God I 
And I would like to welcome you back one last time, just to close out this show here. You have been listening to episode number 59 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. And anything that you want to be read on the show, you can go ahead and let me know there, and I will do that. And if you don't want me to read it, you can also just let me know there as well. If you just kind of want to get in touch with me and kind of let me know any other thoughts that you have about anything on this episode or anything in the past episodes. If you'd like to read any of my written reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, you can do so at David Michigan Garrett Jr., if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. If you'd like to follow me on Letterboxd, it's David OSU. My Instagram is David OSU87. The Journey with a Cinephile Instagram is Journey with a Cinephile, just all one word there. And then the last thing that I would ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you are listening to this on, if you could go ahead and subscribe so you never miss a new episode when I drop them. 
And if you could also rate and review on whatever you listen to this on as well, just so that way I can kind of figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get to a bigger audience out there as well as I have been slowly growing this. And I do have to thank all of you listeners for, you know, helping me there for, you know, everything with that. And then what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, for the next episode is going to be my Christmas special. And I think what I'm going to actually do is watch the Into the Dark episodes of Puka as well as Puka Lives as my kind of two featured reviews on there because I've never seen either of those. I do believe the original one was a Christmas movie and the other one came out in this year, so it allows me to do, you know, kind of that whole double feature there. And then I believe for the Journey Through the Aughts that I'm going to do is I'm going to watch the original 13 Ghosts because that did come out in 1960 as well. It's really all I kind of wanted to delve into. I will also be, you know, continuing to watch and rewatch as many of the 2020 horror movies as I can as well, just to keep rounding out that year-end list that I have coming up. Don't really have anything else that I need to, I think, get you up to speed with. I hope that whatever you do today, I hope you have a great time doing it, and you're also being safe out there. This is your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., signing off. It had been a wonderful evening, and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 